It's great to see everybody. Merry Christmas. My name's Andy. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here. It's my privilege to be with you this morning and to share with you some words from God's Word. Uh, This morning, we're actually continuing our series in the Ten Commandments, and uh, we're almost home because we're in number nine. But, But lest you believe that because we're about to land the plane of this series that it's safe to unbuckle your seatbelt, I remind you that usually when the plane is landing is when you experience the most turbulence. And uh, that was the case for me this week as I was studying and reading through this, just pinned to the mat again as I was thinking through the Word of God and the law of God. Uh, No exit strategies for me. Um, Just a mountain of evidence to say, you are guilty. And that's because this morning we're looking at commandment number nine, which says, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And it's about our words, the words that we say to people. It's about the words that we say about people. It's about the words that we hold back from saying to other people that would otherwise affirm them and encourage them and bring them healing and hope. And so what this commandment is reminding us this morning is that words matter. Words matter. Did you know in 1977, up until 1977, there was a fish in Chile that nobody would eat. It was oily and gross. It was called the toothfish. And so just everybody stayed away from it. Until 1977, when some marketing genius renamed it the Chilean sea bass. And suddenly, it became a top seller, only found in American, the best, seafood, the best seafood joints in America. You only find it on weekend specials. That's what marketers do. They're skilled in taking words and twisting them and turning them just in such a way to compel and draw our interest. There was uh, the Australian gooseberry, which wasn't necessarily flying off the shelves, as you can imagine. Who would ever want to eat a gooseberry, but then a marketer took it, and uh, he called it the kiwi. And suddenly, well, that little green hairy fruit has been doing quite well for itself ever since. So marketers know, what do they know? They know words matter. You know who else knows that words matter? Brett Favre. Brett Favre. Now, I know what you're thinking. Uh, You couldn't hire a Wisconsin native, right? A cheesehead and avoid Green Bay Packer illustrations. And so here I am with my uh, Brett Favre illustration. When he was inducted into the Hall of Fame, he actually said, when I first got into the league, this is his Hall of Fame speech. He said, when I first got in the league, I, I could care less about the Hall of Fame. I never even worried about it, never even thought about it. It wasn't a goal. I was just a country boy that liked to hunt and fish, and I was glad that I was there. I liked playing practical jokes on my teammates and throwing laser beams through their sternums. That's what I enjoyed about football. But then he found out from his wife that his dad actually hoped to be the one to introduce him one day at the Hall of Fame and to tell the whole world how proud he was of his son. And Brett said that at that moment, everything changed for him. Because growing up, his dad had been short on praise and long on tough love. He had never heard his dad say, good game. 
He had never heard his dad praise him or say, that was awesome. And so when Brett heard that there was this possibility that his dad would stand up in front of the world and say, I'm proud of you. Just a few words, the whole trajectory of his goals and his work ethic became, began to change because he longed for words. Just a few words from his father, I'm proud of you. Words matter. They matter to God. In fact, in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus says, for out of the abundance of the heart or the overflow of our heart, the mouth speaks. And I tell you this, that on the day of judgment, you will give account for every idle word that you speak. (laughs) Every word? Did I read that right? That is incredible. Now, in the passage that we're about to read from James, he starts off by saying, not many of you should aspire to be a teacher. For those who, are, who teach are actually judged more strictly. Now, before we think that that's meant to discourage the Andrew Henleys of the world or the, or the Wozniakis, what James is actually doing is trying to highlight a principle about our speech And it's simply this, that the higher the word count, the more opportunity there is for evaluation from God. The more he cares about the words that we say. And so as we sit here this morning, I want us to consider these two ideas side by side. Number one, words matter to God. They are extremely important, so much so that he would put the light of his judgment on every word that we speak And put that side by side with the idea that we talk a lot. It's just the sheer volume of material that he has to evaluate. We've been talking all morning. We've been talking all our lives. We were created to speak. And so he has a lot to say about what we're saying. Where would we ever get the courage and the hope to hear from our heavenly father Well done, my good and faithful servant. I'm proud of you. I love you. In light of those two truths, side by side, how could we ever experience the healing of our tongue? Well, we would get it from his words. We'd need his words from his mouth. And so this morning we read James chapter 3, 1 through 12. And it says, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships of the sea. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. 
For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison, made in the likeness of God. I'm sorry, with it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Well, neither can a salty pond yield fresh water. Let's pray together. Father, those words uh, are incredibly convicting and challenging. And we know that this morning that none of us could ever say that our words are perfect. Where could we get healing from the things that we have said about and to other people, from the deceptiveness of our lives, from our hearts? Uh, We need you. We need you to bring forth fresh fire from above this morning and to change our very hearts. So, Lord God, would you come this morning and speak to your people? You have to speak. I come with fear and trembling, and weakness, and a whole array of sin in this particular area myself. And so would you speak to your people this morning? We pray. We are desperate for your words. In Christ's name, amen. All right, I want to highlight three things in this passage, the power of words, the abuse of the words, and the healing that we need for our words. Why would it be, do you think, that our words would matter so much to God that he would actually judge them all. Well, it's because this passage shows us that our words are very powerful. If we look at verse 9, James says, it's with the tongue that we bless or praise our Father in heaven. And with the same tongue, what do we do? We curse people, and listen to this, who are made in the likeness of God, or we're made in the image of God. We're made in his image. So one of the beauties of the commandments, particularly 5 through 10, those are the commandments that deal with our relationships one to the other, human being to human being. And what we see about the beauty of those commandments is that there is a special dignity that is highlighted and brought out in those commandments as we deal with each other. They all have to do with the essential characteristics of who God has made us to be as his image bearers, made in his likeness. Now, I know that this sounds crazy, but one of the things the Bible teaches us is that you and I are different from rocks and animals and machines. We are actually many models of God. It's as though the the blueprints for God have been stamped upon us. That's how we've been created. And we have personality, and we have rationality, and we have creativity, and we have this ability to think eternally. We have eternity set within us, and so we have this this special dignity as image bearers. And that's what these commandments underscore or highlight. So over the last couple weeks, as Andrew's been unpacking the commandments, and we talked about stealing, it means that we were created for stewardship, 
to own things and to manage resources. And therefore, when we steal from somebody else, we are trampling on the divine blueprint in another person, the dignity they have as an image bearer. When we advance sexually and physically in terms of our relationships, and when we look at pornography, what are we doing? We are treating somebody else as an object, as an animal, as a machine, as something less than who God has intended them to be. And so to break these commandments is to strip away the dignity of another person. And it's the same thing when we come to the ninth commandment. And we're talking about our words, our speech. They're absolutely essential. Our words are essential to what makes us human beings. Now, there was a movie or a TV show, I can't remember which it was, where they had these dolphins and they taught the dolphins to speak. And the dolphins could say, ma and pa. I don't know if it was Flipper or some other movie. I don't know what it was. But, but the dolphins could speak. But we would have to recognize that is far and away different from what we're able to do when we speak. You can train monkeys. You can, you can train parrots to form language. But by and large, what we'd say is the ability to make words and to craft language, the ability to hear words and to listen is intrinsic to what makes us human. And therefore, to abuse words is to strip away and trample on people. When we say, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, well, we just sort of think that means you shouldn't lie about people. But really, the idea of to bear witness. Well, I mean, we don't even use that language, to bear witness. But the word bear means to carry a responsibility or a weight for another person. And we do that in the ninth commandment with our words. We carry the, the responsibility of the truth for our neighbor, the people in our life. We're assuming the responsibility that the truth of God and who he has designed us to be as image bearers would be on full display, accurately represented. But instead, many of us have been shaped and ruined by what? By reckless words, words that have pierced us like a sword, words that we have used to pierce other people. Think about the things that you can remember somebody saying to you that have hurt so deeply. You make me sick. I don't even know if you're my child. I never wanted you anyway. Marrying you is the worst thing I've ever done. My life has been hell since the day I met you. You're a jerk. You're worthless. You'll never amount to anything. I hate you. I wish you were dead. Think about the power of those words. It's a full-on assault against the truth and the dignity that God has given us as image bearers. You know, you, you, you know, once you say something, you can't take it back. You can't retract it. And that's what that passage tells us in, in Proverbs 12, 18. It says in Proverbs 12, 18 that reckless words are like the thrust of a sword and that means that words are powerful because once they're leveraged in, once they penetrate, they take residence in our hearts. It's the thrusting of a sword. Now, I, I realize, you know, you might say, well, if I stab you with a sword, I might go, oops, that was a mistake. I'll just take the sword right back out. 
But if you do that, what happens? You leave that person wounded. And even if you are able to bind up the wound, what's left? You have a scar. And so the tongue is poison, James says. It's poison. It'll penetrate into your being. It'll slowly wreak havoc on you. Have you ever been poisoned with words? Have you ever poisoned anyone with words? I have. And what this commandment is telling us is that this is a serious thing to belong to the human race, to be, to be an image bearer of the king. But our words, James says, don't just have the power to impact others. They also have the power to impact us. They have this incredible power over our own character as well. So look at verses two through four in the passage. Excuse me, two through five. James says, hey, if we have control over our tongue, over our words, there is a way in which our whole lives will be bridled. It's amazing. And he gives us three word pictures there. First of all, he talks about putting a bit, this small little thing in the, in the mouth of an, a huge animal and being able to totally control it. And then he talks about a ship. You know, think about a wooden ship. It takes acres of wood to create this massive ship and just a small little piece of wood accurately placed on the ship can control the whole thing. He gives us a third word picture. It's the picture of a spark. Think about a cigarette butt in just the right place in California when it's really dry and suddenly you have billions of dollars worth of damage and wildfire. That's the pictures that James gives us here. He says, likewise your tongue. Harness your tongue and you will harness your very life. As go your words, so go your life. That's unbelievable. What does he mean by that? Well, I think this is the general principle. The general principle is this. In the short run, whenever you and I sin, usually it hurts other people and God the most. But in the long run, our sin, our words, actually end up hurting us the most in the long run. And that's because your words, like a rudder, have a tremendous amount of power over your character. He says in verse 6 that they can set ablaze the entire course of your life, that words can actually mold your character. Now, I want you to think about this really carefully. When you get out of bed in the morning, you usually don't have very many clothes on. I mean, you have a little bit on. But in order to go to work, you've got to get dressed. You've got to get dressed to be able to do your work. And in a similar way, your thoughts, your feelings actually need to be clothed in words for them to be able to work. Let me say that again. Your thoughts need to be clothed in words to be able to do their work. Here's what happens for us. When we have the thought, I'm bitter, I'm afraid, I'm angry, those words have a power. But when you sit around and you say, when you actually say the words, I'm stupid, I'm an idiot, I suck, I'm worthless, I don't deserve to live, what happens? You've clothed your thoughts and your feelings with words and suddenly they take on a new power. There's this new incredible reality that begins to take shape in your life. Now before we begin to think that what James is saying here 
is that, oh, you've got all these feelings. Don't, don't give words to them. He's actually saying the opposite. Because what he's trying to teach us here is this principle of life. That really the way that your life and your thoughts and your heart gets out and works itself out and gets fleshed out. The way that your life gets traction is through talking. Not just through thinking, but through speaking and communicating and writing things down and discussing with other people. That's how much our words matter. That's why words are so powerful. Yes, in ways that are harmful, but also in ways that are healthy and healing and cleansing. And so actually what James is trying to tell us is that that's why we need to be able to say things like, I'm bitter. But we need to be able to do that in the right environment and with the right kind of people. It's really important. In fact, the worst thing that we could do is never admit to myself or to ourselves that you're bitter or frustrated in a particular situation. It's a really important thing just in the way that we self-organize our thoughts to be able to talk and share. But the Bible gives us the right environments. It tells us what the right people are. It's called confession. There's a Greek word for confession. It's homologain. Think about logos, the word for logic or words. And the word homologain means to say the same thing as God, to agree with God, to bear witness to the truth about God regarding yourself and other people. So, if I'm bitter and if I'm angry, what's the right place? It's the Lord's Supper with the right people. I need the right people. I need a godly friend. I need a mentor. I need a brother or a sister or a counselor or a discipleship group. I need people who are actually safe enough and know me well enough and love God enough that they are willing to do the hard thing and to hear me and to draw up my thoughts and to say that's true or that's a lie. That's a distortion on the reality of God in your life. Who are those people in your life? Can you point to people like that right now that you have that are safe enough for you to do that kind of truth and love with them? We have to do it. Confession with people who are safe and who love you and agree with God about you, confessing the thoughts and the, con the conditions of your heart with words is absolutely essential. It's essential to clothe your thoughts with words as a part of true biblical repentance and cleansing. Have you ever noticed how, how different your thoughts feel when you actually put words to them, when you're actually talking them out? And so through careful, thoughtful, truth and love friendships, words can actually become powerful in a new direction. The opposite of that, however, is pure ventilation and spewing, just <laughs> the wrath and the anger in an unchecked way. And when we do that, James says, it spreads like wildfire and it takes on a new reality which moves you in unhealthy directions in your relationships. Because here's the principle. When you put motives and thoughts into expressions through words or behavior, it takes on a new power in your life. Hey, we were made for it. We have to do truth and love. In fact, in uh, uh, 
Ephesians 4.15, it says that the growth of the body depends on it. Paul starts out this way. He says, lies, schemes, the words out there that threaten to sink the whole ship, but rather what? Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up into him who is our head, that is Christ. So when you look at this bulletin, and right on the front page, it has our mission statement. We're supposed to know God and grow together. That's not just a neat little motto. This is actually what God is calling us to do. And so if we are to grow together, what do we have to do? We have to speak the truth in love. That means that we can't just go around speaking the truth lovelessly, dropping our little truth bombs and running away. We also can't love somebody without giving them the truth. It's always both, 100% both, truth and love. And when we have that, it can change the whole trajectory of our lives. I, I, uh, you know, I, I can remember how, words power, how powerful words have been for me. Uh, there's been a few times in ministry where I've hit a rough spot, and I was ready to mail it in. I mean, I'm talking about uh, the Circle K looked like a pretty good job. I, you know what I want to do? I just want to go put the hot dogs on the rollers. I just want to punch lottery tickets. I just want to keep the cappuccino machine full. Like, Circle K, that's looking pretty good. I don't want to be misunderstood anymore in ministry. I don't want to lead anymore. I don't want to be out front. Just Circle K. Circle K, it looks good. But I'm so thankful that at those moments, there have been men in my life mentors, brothers, who have sat me down. In fact, I can remember one particular pastor who sat me down, knew me well, and he said, Andy, I just got to tell you, you are a pastor. God made you to be a pastor. You're a pastor. That's all I needed. It was so powerful. It was so powerful that I can remember exactly where we were eating where we were sitting in the restaurant. This is like four or five years ago. I can remember what he was wearing and what he had to eat. I can't remember anything from seminary, but I can remember <laughs> everything about that conversation because that's how powerful words are. And when, they, when somebody speaks to you like that, listen, Proverbs 18, 21, life and death are in the power of the tongue. Are you affirming anyone like that with the truth of God? Here's what Tim Keller says. Tim Keller says, listen, I know it's hard. This is hard to do. But Tim Keller says, what lengths would God go to in order to be both loving and truthful? What lengths, what depths would God go to? The answer is the cross. Think about this. It just took a moment, just words to create the whole universe. Let there be light. But what God never said was let there be forgiveness. He couldn't just say that. He couldn't just snap his fingers on sin because truth and love were in a certain kind of tension. And when mankind fell, he couldn't just say the forgiveness of sin. It was gonna take something radically different. And what did it take? It took centuries to set it up. It took incomprehensible things. It took the father rejecting the son, despising the son on the cross for us. With God, there are no shortcuts. Keller says there's no compromise between truth and love. It's always both. So here's what I'm saying. 
When you think about your marriages right now, there's probably situations in your parenting or the family or people in this church, and you think about those situations and you go, it's impossible. You can't do truth and love. I can't figure it out. And what Keller is saying is, of course it's hard. It was hard for God. Like, it took a long time. So it's probably gonna take some ingenuity on your part. It's probably gonna take some thinking and a lot of prayer and some time. But the one thing that we can't say is, I just can't do it. I can't do truth and love. It's too hard. He says, no, look at the cross. The cross, it tells us that we need truth and we need love. The ninth commandment says, you must bear true witness for your neighbor. Tell the truth. So we're to accurately represent reality as it is in our fellow image bearers. That means we tell the truth. And because the commandment calls us to bear with, that means to love. We love them. We're for our neighbor. We take the responsibility to love them with our words. Well, if the call is to love, how do we abuse and trample? How do we bear false witness against our neighbor? So I got five ideas, and we're going to go through them pretty quick. All right, so number one is harmless lies. Uh, harmless lies are just polite lies. They're the ones that uh, we might say white, you know, white lies. They're euphemisms or kindly meant lies. Something like, I would really love to hang out with you next Thursday, but I'm pretty sure I've got another commitment. Well, no, no. You don't have another commitment, and you would not like to hang out with them, okay? That's a kindly meant lie. I just don't want to deal with the inconvenience of having to navigate through this relational tension with you. Uh, Euphemisms, right? Euphemisms are where we, uh, we say one thing, but we mean another. It's easier to say things like, well, you know, we terminate pregnancies. Uh, we go to gentlemen's clubs. Uh, we sleep together instead of actually representing the truth that we murder babies and we go to strip clubs and we have sex outside of marriage. That's a euphemism. A friend of mine was a uh, journalism major at uh, UGA. And uh, when he graduated, he submitted some writing to the local Athens Banner Herald. And they, uh, they, they got back in touch with him and said, well, you know, hey, it's, you know, it's not you, it's us. In fact, your writing is probably too sophisticated for our readers. And he knew right away, that's a euphemism. What you mean is my writing stinks and you don't want to hire me. And so what's the problem with these lies, these little white lies? Well, in every sense, they objectify. They treat another person as someone who's dependent on them. They keep the truth from them. They put them in a dependent posture. They objectify. You treat someone like a child, and the Bible says that you're abusing them. Number two, stretching the truth. What is stretching the truth? Any kind of twisting or exaggerating the truth or holding or purposeful de deception of half-truths. The Bible says, uh, don't bear false witness against your neighbor. The word literally is don't be insincere, okay? What makes untruthfulness untruthful is deception. It's not the factual accuracy or inaccuracy of our words. That's what we wanna try to bank on, but it's rather the intention to deceive. And there's lots of ways that we can do this. Uh, Weber, Hogan, and Hildebrand 
Well, they all knew that Henley didn't rob the bank. But when the police showed up, Hogan or uh, uh, Weber said, oh yeah, he robbed the bank. He knew he didn't. When they asked Hogan, Hogan says, well, he was in the area. And then they asked Hildebrand. Hildebrand didn't say anything. He was just silent. Now, we would look at that and we would say, well, two of them didn't lie. But we would say, absolutely, they still broke the ninth commandment. Because what they meant to do was to distort and deceive and to cover up the truth. And any time that we do that, we end up accomplishing the same thing. We're trampling on another person. We, we think we can paint the picture with our truth however we want, regardless of how we hurt other people. Thirdly, prejudice. Prejudice is assuming a person is just like everyone else in their group without actually doing the hard work to get to know that individual person. Without taking people on a case-to-case -case basis, so much easier, just lump everybody in to their group and to make prejudgments. Prejudgments say you don't care about the truth, you're not actually interested in the person, all you care about is being blinded with the facts. Number four, duplicity. Duplicity, the word integrity comes from the word integer. It's a math concept, all right? We know this. Uh, when you take an integer and you spread it across math equations, they're the same in, in one place as they are in another. But to be duplicited, duplicitous is to be multifaceted, to have multiple faces. It means that you're not one, you're, you're uh, one way in one place, and somewhat, uh, somewhere uh, completely different in another place. This is like the old Eddie Haskell syndrome. You know, leave it to Beaver. I've heard Andrew Henley say that was one of the only shows he was allowed to watch as a kid. Leave it to the Beaver. But you remember Eddie Haskell? When he was with the Beaver, he was like, you snot-nosed little punk kid. But when he, when, all of a sudden, oh, Mrs. Cleaver, how beautiful your dress. It's duplicitous, right? One, one place I'm this way, another group I'm this way. Who are you on Friday night? Are you the same person as you are with your community group? Who are you at work? Are you the same place there as you are on Sunday mornings? Total integrity. The ninth commandment calls for total integrity. It means that I'm a dependable person. And lastly, keeping your promises. Psalm 16 says, if you swear to your own hurt and you never take a bribe and you keep all your promises, well, a man who does those things will never be shaken. You know, it's one of the things that makes us human, that we would make promises to another person, that we would actually be so drawn to them with love and care that we would want to extend ourselves, that we would want to commit to that person with a certain kind of energy within us. This is part of why we're human. There's a, uh, there's a great... Uh, quote in Tim Keller's book, The Meaning of Marriage. Uh, it's kind of a, a, a lofty worded quote, but I want to read it to you because it is incredibly powerful. In fact, I usually try to read this when I'm going through marriage counseling with couples, but this is from Lewis Smeads, who's an ethics professor, and he's talking about the dignity within us, our humanity that compels us to make promises. So here's the quote should be on the screen. When I make a promise, I bear witness that my future with you 
is not locked into some bionic beam by which I was stuck with the fateful combinations of X's and Y's and the hand I was dealt out of my parents' genetic deck. When I make a promise, I declare that my future with people who depend on me is not predetermined by a mixed-up culture of my tender younger years. I am not fated. I am not predetermined. So what he's saying is that when you make promises, that you're actually proving you're not a machine, that you have this freedom within you. He says, I'm not a lump of human dough whipped into shape by the reinforcement and aversive conditioning of my past. When I make a promise to anyone, I rise above all the conditioning that limits me. And then he says this, no German shepherd ever promised to be there with me. No home computer ever promised to be my loyal help. Only a person can make a promise. And when he does, he is the most free. We are image bearers. And we have this dignity. And because of that, there is a wonder. And there is a power that our words possess that is unmatched. And so if our words have that kind of impact, think about the kind of gift that we have to be able to bear true witness for our neighbors. It's powerful. Words to inspire, words to affirm, words to validate. Think about words. God used words to create. And he's given you the ability to do that as well. You can speak to a child and you can create courage in them. You can actually draw it out of their very heart. Don't you want to use your words to heal like that other people. How do we get there? How do we see that our words have life like that? How can our words be healed and healing to others? Uh, Well, we got to remember and receive the Christmas story. So I want to close this way. It's kind of a cheesy way to close, but I want us to have a Christmas story, right? So just imagine that the stockings are hung with care And we're all nestled around a big fireplace, and we got a cup of hot chocolate, and we're going to tell the Christmas story, right? Here's the story. It's a little bit different. Once upon a time, there was a famous musical composer, and he left behind a never-seen-before sheet of music. It was clearly a piece that was written for a violinist, but it looked incredible, extraordinary, difficult. It almost looked unplayable. When, when the city guild saw it, they thought, there's no way. At the top of the music sheet, the composer had written, to the city guild of violinists. Now, kids, uh, a guild is just a club, like right? It's a fancy word for, you know, a group of some sorts. In this case, it was a group of the best violinists in town. Now, the city guild was honored, but honestly, they were more embarrassed because they tried so hard to play this music And every time they tried, they failed. They'd go home. They'd pull out their violins by themselves. They'd play. They'd come back. They'd say, you can't play those notes at the same time. It's impossible. And they'd laugh about it. And they'd, you know, wonder. And sometimes they'd just write it off and say, you know, that old man, he probably was just messing around with us. These notes were never even meant to be played together. This was all a big farce. Until one day, many years later, a man walked into town, scraggly beard, old guy, and he had this old violin case, but he looked like a homeless man. 
And he checked into the local hotel, and at night, he'd wander out into the middle of the city park, and he'd pull out his violin, his beat-up old violin, and he'd start playing this music. And so rumors started to spread, and the city guild, they started to show up. And at a distance, they heard it, and they thought, whoa, can you believe it? That's the song. That's our song. He's doing it. He's playing it. It's unbelievable. And it was beautiful. And as that violinist played it, the music leapt and it danced with precision. It was the most beautifully played music they had ever heard. And when he finished, some of the members of the guild went, bravo, bravo. But most of them hated him. And they said, that's not yours. You're not a part of this club. You shouldn't be playing that. That belongs to us. That's our music. What are you doing with it? And he said, well, the composer was my father, and he taught me this song, and he made me an honorary member of the guild, and I'm here so that I can teach it to you as well. They said, no, you get out of here. That's the dumbest thing we've ever heard. Look at you. You're not sophisticated enough to be here, and they threw him out of town, and with that, Nobody ever heard the music again. Now listen, John chapter 10. In John chapter 10, there was another group. It was the guild of the Pharisees, and they were ready to stone Jesus. And you know what Jesus does? He quotes a passage from Psalm 82, where God had been addressing this group of people and warning them that though they claimed to have special status, they hadn't lived up to it. They had some music that was given to them, the law of God, the Ten Commandments. And though they tried to play it, they failed again and again and again. In John 10, Jesus says, this is why I've come. That's why the Father has sent me, that I might do the works of the Father, that I might play the music for you and fulfill the law for you so that you would know and understand and believe that I am in the Father and he is in me. Israel thought it was special because it had the gift of a great law. But at Christmas, we're given an even greater gift. We're given the gift of God's Son, the only one who can play the music, the only one who can fulfill the law. When you think about the law of your words this morning, it's unplayable. We can't do it. But Christ has come. The Word of God made flesh. That's what Christmas is about. And so when he ascended into heaven, something happened at Pentecost that transformed the words of the people who were there. Fresh fire fell. The Holy Spirit of God from heaven. And suddenly, people began to have words transformed. They were praising God in new tongues. And Peter said to the people that day who were gathered, This was God's plan all along, to rescue and redeem a people. And this promise is for you. So repent and be baptized, every single one of you. And they were. And so we must do the same thing this morning. If we want fresh fire, if we want our words to be transformed, we have to do the same thing. There has to be confession out loud with our words. There must be repentance. There must be an acknowledgement, confession to say the same thing as God says about me and my heart and my words means that 
I am honest about my dishonesty. And I'm honest, I'm honest about where my words have been abusive. And then secondly, we have to place our trust in Christ, to rejoice in Christ, to look at the perfect word made man. And when we do, when we have union with Christ, when we trust in him here at Christmas to be the one who plays the unplayable music of our words, then guess what? We have union with Christ And because of that, we get to have what's said about Christ said about us. Well done. This is my beloved son. This is my beloved daughter with whom I am well pleased. Only when we hear those words can our words be transformed. So may we hear those words this morning. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the gift of your son. Thank you for your law, which perfectly expresses the character and the dignity of God and the blueprint for which you've made your people. It's an amazing thing to be an image bearer of God. It is a weighty and serious and sobering thing. And we confess that we fail so miserably. And that's why we often sing, Lord, we need you. Every hour we need you because we recognize how desperate we are for transformation, for the transformation of our words. Lord, we take a moment just in the quietness of our heart to acknowledge the deep ways that we have perhaps hurt people with our words and that we have borne false witness against our neighbor. God, if we could take them back, we, could, we would. But even so, there can be a scar, a scar that only you, you can redeem with the power of your blood. So wash us this morning and make us new and help us to receive again this gift of your son, especially here at Christmas. May we remember that the greatest gift that we have is that you have given your very self to us, filled us with your Holy Spirit, and that we can have fresh fire this morning as well. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.